Chapter Twenty Six of Legacy by James H. Schmitz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Legacy, Chapter Twenty Six. Three mornings later, the emergency signal called her back to camp on the double. Trigger in over the developments of the past days in her mind as she trotted along the path, getting dressed more or less on the way. The De Vegas dome was solidly invested by now its transmitters blanked out. It hadn't tried to communicate with its attackers. On their part, the Fed ships weren't pushing the attack. They were holding the point, waiting for the big, slow-wrecking boats to arrive, which would very gently and very delicately start uncovering and opening the dome, taking it apart piece by piece. The hierarchy could surrender themselves and whatever they were hiding in there at any point in the process. They didn't have a chance nobody and nothing had escaped. The scouts had swatted down a few De Vegas vessels on the way in, but those had been headed toward the dome, not away from it. Perhaps the psychology service ship had arrived, several days ahead of time. The other three weren't in camp, but the lock to the commissioner's ship stood open. Trigger went in and found them gathered up front. The commissioner had swung the transmitter cabinet aside and was back there, prowling among the power leaves. What's wrong? Trigger asked. Transmitters went out, he said. Don't know why yet. Grab some tools and help me check. She slipped on her work gloves, grabbed some tools, and joined him. Lyad and Mentellish watched them silently. They found the first spots of the fungus a few minutes later. Fungus! Mantellus said, startled. He began to rumble in his pockets. My microscope! I have it. Lyad handed it to him. She looked at him with concern. "'You don't think—it seems possible. We did come in here last night, remember? And we came straight from the lab.' "'But we had been decontaminated,' Lyad said, puzzledly. "'Don't try to walk in here, Professor,' Trigger warned as he lumbered forward. "'We might have to de-electrocute you. The Commissioner will scrape off a sample and hand it out. This stuff—' if it's what you think it might be, is poisonous?" "'Quite harmless to life, my dear,' said the professor, bending over the patch of greenish-gray scum the commissioner had reached out to him. "'But ruinous and delicate instruments. That's why we're so careful.' Holati Tate glanced at Trigger. "'Better look in the black box, Trigg,' he said. She nodded and wormed herself farther into the innards of the transmitters. A minute later she announced, "'Full of it!' and that's the one part we can't repair or replace, of course. Is it your beast, Professor?" "'It seems to be,' Mantellus said unhappily. "'But we have, at least, a solvent which will remove it from the equipment.' Trigger came sliding out from under the transmitters, the detached black box under one arm. "'Better use it then before the stuff gets to the rest of the ship. It won't help the black box.' She shook it. It tinkled. "'Shot,' she said. There went another quarter million of your credits, Commissioner." Mantellish and Lyad headed for the lock to get the solvent. Trigger slipped off her work gloves and turned to follow them. "'Might be a while before I'm back,' she said. The Commissioner started to say something, then nodded and climbed back into the transmitters. After a few minutes, Mantellish came puffing in with sprayers and cans of solvent. "'It's at least fortunate you tried to put out a call just now,' he said it might have done incalculable damage." "'Doubt it,' said Holati. 
A few more instruments might have gone. Like the communicators. The main equipment is fungus-proof. How do you attach this thing?" Mantella showed him. The commissioner thanked him. He directed a fine spray of the solvent into the black box and watched the fungus melt. Happen to notice where Trigger and Lyad went? he asked. Eh? said Mantellish. He reflected. I saw them walking down toward camp, talking together as I came in, he called. Should I go get them? Don't bother, Polati said. They'll be back. They came walking back into the ship around half an hour later. Both faces looked rather white and strained. Lyad has something she wants to tell you, Halati, Trigger said. Where's Mantellish? In his lab. Taking a nap, I believe. That's good. We don't want him here for this. Go ahead, Lyad. Just the important stuff. You can give us the details after we've left. Three hours later, the ship was well away from Luscious, traveling subspace, traveling fast. Trigger walked up into the control section. Mantellish is still asleep, she said. They'd fed the professor a doped drink to get him aboard without detailed explanation and argument about how much of the lab should be loaded on the ship first. Shall I get Lyad out of her cabin for the rest of the story, or wait till he wakes up? Better wait, said the commissioner. He'll come out of it in about an hour, and he might as well hear it with us. Looks like navigating's going to be a little rough for a spell anyway. Trigger nodded and sat down in the control next to his. After a while, he glanced over at her. How did you get her to talk? he asked. We went back into the woods a bit. I tied her over a stump and broke two sticks across the first seat of Trenest. Got the idea from Mahul, sort of, Trigger added vaguely. When I picked up a third stick, Lyad got awfully anxious to keep things at just a fast conversational level. We kept it there. Hm, said the Commissioner. You don't feel she did any lying this time? I doubt it. I tapped her one now and then, just to make sure she didn't slow down enough to do much thinking. Besides, I got the whole business down on a pocket recorder, and Lyad knew it. If she makes one more goof till this deal is over, the recording gets released to the Hub's newsviewer outfits, yowls and all. She'd sooner lose Trenest than risk having that happen. She'll be good." "'Yeah, probably,' he said thoughtfully. "'About that substation. Would you feel more comfortable if we went after the bunch round the De Vegas Dome first and got us an escort for the trip?' "'Sure,' Trigger said. But that would just about kill any chances of doing anything personally, wouldn't it?" "'I'm afraid so. Scout intelligence will go along pretty far with me. But they couldn't go that far. We might be able to contact Quillen individually, though. He's a top-notch man and a fighter.' "'It does seem to me,' Trigger said, "'that we ought to run any risk of being spotted till we know exactly what this thing is like.' "'Well,' said the Commissioner, "'I'm with you there. We shouldn't. What about Mantellish and Lyad? You can't let them know, either." The Commissioner motioned with his head. The rest cubicle back of the cabins. If we see a chance to do anything, we'll pop them both into rest. I can dream up something to make that look plausible afterwards, I think." Trigger was silent a moment. Lyad had told them she'd dispatched the Aurora to stand guard over a subspace station where the missing King Plasmoid presently was housed until both she and the combat squadron from Trenest could arrive there. 
the exact location of that station had been the most valuable of the bits of information she had extracted so painstakingly from Belmorden. The coordinates were centered on the Commissioner's course screen at the moment. "'How about that Trenest squadron?' Trigger asked. "'Think Lyad might have risked a lie, and they could get out here in time to interfere?' "'No,' said the Commissioner. She had to have some idea of where to send them before starting them out of the hub. They'll be doing fine if they make it to the substation in another two weeks. Now the Aurora. If they started for Luscious right after Lyad called them last night, at best they can't get there any sooner than we can get to the substation. I figure that at four days. If they turn right around then and start back... Trigger laughed. You can bet on that, she said. The Commissioner had used his ship's guns to brand the substation's coordinates in twenty-mile figures into a mountain plateau above Plasmoid Creek. They'd left much more detailed information in camp, but there was a chance it would be overlooked in too hurried a search. "'Then they'll show up at the substation again four or five days behind us,' the Commissioner said. "'So they're no problem. But our own outfits fast as ships can cut across from the De Vegas Dome in less than three days after their search-party messages from Luscious to tell them why we've stopped transmitting and where we've gone. Or the psychology ship might get to Luscious before the search-party does and start transmitting about the coordinates." "'In any case,' said Trigger, "'it's our own boys who are likely to be the problem.' "'Yes. I'd say we should have two days, give or take a few hours, after we get to the station to see if we can do anything useful and get it done. Of course, somebody might come wandering into Luscious right now and start wondering about those coordinate figures, or drop in at our camp and discover we're gone. But that's not very likely, after all." "'Couldn't be helped, anyway,' Trigger said. "'No. If we knock ourselves out on this job, somebody besides Lyad's Trenest squadron and the De Vegas have to know just where the station is.' He shook his head. That Lyad. I figured she'd know how to run the transmitters, so I gave her the chance. But I never imagined she'd be a good enough engineer to get inside them and mess them up without killing herself. Lyad has her points, Trigger said. Too bad she grew up a rat. You had a playback attachment stuck in there, then? Naturally. Full of the fungus, I suppose? Full of it, said the Commissioner. Well, Lyad still lost on that maneuver. Much less comfortably than she might have, too. I think she'd agree with you there, Trigger said. Lyad's first assignment after Professor Mantelish came out of the dope was to snap him back into trance and explain to him how he had once more been put under a hypno-control and used for her felonious ends by the First Lady of Trenest. They let him work off his rage while he was still under partial control. Then the Ermitine woke him up. He stared at her coldly. "'You are a deceitful woman, Lyad Emmertine,' he declared. "'I don't wish to see you about my labs again, at any time, under any pretext. Is that understood?' "'Yes, Professor,' Lyad said. "'And I'm sorry that I believed it necessary to—' Mantellish snorted. "'Sorry! Necessary! Just to be certain it doesn't happen again, I shall make up a batch of anti-hypno-pills if I can remember the prescription." "'I happen,' the Ermitine ventured, "'to know a very good prescription for the purpose, Professor, if you will permit me.' Bantellus stood up. "'I'll accept no prescriptions from you,' he said icily. 
he looked at Trigger as he turned to walk out of the cabin. "'Or drinks from you, either, Trigger, R.G.' he growled. "'Who in the great spiraling galaxy is there left to trust?' "'Sorry, Professor,' Trigger said meekly. In half an hour or so he calmed down enough to join the others in the lounge, to get the final story on Guess Fail and the missing King Plasmoid from the Ermitine. Dr. Guess Fail, Bly had reported, had died very shortly after leaving the Manon system. And with him had died every man on board the U-League's transport ship. It might be simplest, she went on, to relate the first series of events from the Plasmoid's point of view. Point of view? Professor Mantellish interrupted. The Plasmoid has awareness, then? Oh, yes, that one does. Self-awareness? Definitely. Oh, ho! But then— Professor, Trigger interrupted politely in turn, may I get you a drink? He glared at her, growled, then grinned. I'll shut up, he said. Lyad went on. Dr. Fail had resumed experimentation with the 112-113 unit almost as soon as he was alone with it, and one of the first things he did was to detach the small 113 section from the main one. The point Dr. Fail hadn't adequately considered when he took this step was that 113's function appeared to be that of a restraining, limiting, or counteracting device on its vastly larger partner. The old galactics obviously had been aware of dangerous potentialities in their more advanced creations, and had used this means of regulating them. That the method was reliable was indicated by the fact that, in the thirty thousand years since the old galactics had vanished, Plasmoid-112 had remained restricted to the operations required for the maintenance of Harvest Moon. But it hadn't liked being restricted. And it had been very much aware of the possibilities offered by the new life-forms which lately had intruded on Harvest Moon. The instant it found itself free, it attempted to take control of the human minds in its environment. "'Mind-level control?' Mantellish exclaimed, looking startled. "'Not unheard of, of course, and we've been considering—but of human minds?' Lyad nodded. "'It can contact human minds,' she said. "'Though, perhaps rather fortunately, it can project that particular field effect only within a quite limited radius. A little less, the de Vegas found later, than five miles.' Mantella shook his head, frowning. He turned toward the Commissioner. Holadi he said emphatically, I believe that thing could be dangerous. For a moment they all looked at him. Then the Commissioner cleared his throat. It's a possibility, Mantellish, he admitted. We will give it thought later. What, Trigger asked Lyad, killed the people on the ship? The attempt to control them, Lyad said. Dr. Fail apparently had died as he was leaving the laboratory with the 113 unit. The other men died wherever they were. The ship, running subspace and pilotless, plowed headlong into the next gravitic twister and broke up. A De Vegas ship's detectors picked up the wreckage three days later. Belmorden was on board the De Vegas ship and in charge. The De Vegas, at that time, were at least as plasmoid-hungry as anybody else, and knew they were not likely to see their hunger gratified for several decades. The wreck of a U-League ship in the Manon area decidedly was worth investigating. If the big plasmoid hadn't been capable of learning from its mistakes, the de Vega's investigating party also would have died. Since it could and did learn, they lived. 
The searchers discovered human remains and the crushed remnants of the 113 unit in a collapsed section of the ship. Then they discovered the big plasmoid, alive in subspace, undamaged and very conscious of the difficulties it now faced. It had already initiated its first attempt to solve the difficulties. It was incapable of outward motion and could not change its own structure, but it was no longer alone. It had constructed a small work plasmoid with visual and manipulating organs, as indifferent to exposure to subspace as its designer. When the boarding party encountered the twain, the working plasmoid apparently was attempting to perform some operation on the frozen and shriveled brain of one of the human cadavers. Belmorden was a scientist of no mean stature among the de Vegas. He did not understand immediately what he saw, but he realized the probable importance of understanding it. He had the plasmoids and their lifeless human research object transferred to the de Vegas ship and settled down to observe what they did. Released, the working plasmoid went back immediately to its task. It completed it. Then Balmorden, and presumably the plasmoids, waited. Nothing happened. Finally, Balmorden investigated the dead brain. Installed in it, he found what appeared to be near-microscopic energy receivers of plasmoid material. There was nothing to indicate what type of energy they were to or could receive. De Vegas scientists, when they happened to be of the hierarchy, always had enjoyed one great advantage over most of their colleagues in the Federation. They had no difficulty in obtaining human volunteers to act as subjects for experimental work. Balmorden appointed three of his least valuable crew members as volunteers for the plasmoids' experiments. The first of the three died almost immediately. The plasmoid, it turned out, lacked understanding of, among other things, the use and need of anesthetics. Balmorden, accordingly, assisted obligingly in the second operation. He was delighted when it became apparent that his assistance was being willingly and comprehendingly accepted. This subject did not die immediately, but he did not regain consciousness after the plasmoid devices had been installed, and some hours later he did die in convulsions. Number three was more fortunate. He regained consciousness. He complained of headaches, and after he had slept, of nightmares. The next day he went into shock for a period of several hours. When he came out of it, he reported tremblingly that the big plasmoid was talking to him, though he could not understand what it said. There were two more test operations, both successful. In all three cases, the headaches and nightmares stopped in about a week. The first subject in the series was beginning to understand the plasmoid. Balmorden listened to his reports. He had his three surviving volunteers given very extensive physical and psychological tests. They seemed to be in fine condition. Balmorden now had the operation performed on himself. When he woke up, he disposed of his three predecessors. Then he devoted his full attention to learning what the plasmoid was trying to say. In about three weeks it became clear. The plasmoid had established contact with human beings because it needed their help. It needed a base like Harvest Moon from which to operate and on which to provide for its requirements. It did not have the understanding to permit it to construct such a base. So it made the de Vegas a proposition. It would work for them, somewhat as it had worked for the old Galactics, if, unlike the old Galactics, they would work for it. Balmorden, newly become a person of foremost importance, 
transmitted the offer to the hierarchy in the hub. With no hesitation it was accepted, but Balmorden was warned not to bring his monster into the hub area. If it was discovered on a De Vegas world, the hierarchy would be faced with a choice between another war with the Federation and submission to more severely restrictive Federation controls. It didn't care for either alternative. It had lost three wars with the Federated Worlds in the past, and each time had been reduced in strength. They contacted Vishni's independent fleet. Vishni's area was not too far from Belmorden's ship position, and the De Vegas had had previous dealings with him and his men. This time they hired the I-Fleet to become the plasmoid's temporary caretaker. Within a few weeks it was parked on Luscious, where it devoted itself to the minor creative experimentation which presently was to puzzle Professor Mantellish. The De Vegas, meanwhile, toiled prodigiously to complete the constructions which were to be a central feature in the new alliance. On a base very far removed from the hub, on a base securely anchored and concealed among the gravitic swirlings and shiftings of a subspace turbulence area, virtually indetectable, the monster could make a very valuable partner. If it was discovered, the partnership could be disowned. So could the fact that they had constructed the substation for it, in itself a grave breach of Federation treaties. They built the substation. They built the armed subterranean observer's dome three days' travel away from it. The plasmoid was installed in its new quarters. It then requested the use of the Vishni fleet people for further experimentation. The hierarchy was glad to grant the request. It would have had to get rid of those two well-informed hirelings in any case. Having received its experimental material, the plasmoid requested the De Vegas to stay away from the substation for a while. End of chapter 26